right, as we get started this evening, we have a series of announcements. First of all, we're going to have our annual Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving slash Christmas dinner on Sunday, December 12th, immediately after church. So there'll be sign-up sheets out in the fellowship hall regarding who brings what, who helps out, any volunteers to help with the cooking and stuff will be appreciated. A uh, second announcement is that uh, next Tuesday night, following Bible class, we'll have a special uh, presentation from Paul Scharf. Now, I kn- I've known Paul via emails and texts and other things for a number of years. He used to work with uh, Randy White in the startup of his dispensational publishing house. Uh, but Paul is now the area representative for Friends of Israel. And I have been, to put it in colloquial, no, I won't put it in colloquial terms. I've been griping and complaining for six or seven years to the powers that be at Friends of Israel that they don't have a presence in Texas. And so Paul called me. He's their new rep, and so he's going to come, and at the end of class next week he'll give us a little uh, talk related to uh, Friends of Israel. So that should be very good. They have a tremendous uh, ministry. And then the Treats for Troops orange box will be in the fellowship area for more Treats for Troops through the next Sunday. And then the November men's prayer breakfast is not this coming Saturday, but the next Saturday on November 20th at 9.30 a.m. So make sure that you are 7.30. What did I say? You know, it starts off 7.30 here, and by the time it comes out, it's something different. I have, it makes me worried. Okay. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So as we begin tonight, let's make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord so that we can learn all of the many wonderful things that God has for us in understanding his word and uh, go forward. So let's bow our heads together and have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have forgiveness of sins because Christ died on the cross paying that penalty for us on our behalf and that as the Lamb of God, he was our sacrifice in our place. Father, we're thankful for your manifold grace in our lives, all that we have in Christ, all that is ours because we have been uh, given new life together in him and raised together and seated together in him in the heavenlies and father we just pray that we might come to understand just a little bit more as we go through all of our various studies to what that means and that we are to walk worthy of that high exalted position we now have father we live in a world that is just seems like it's going crazier and crazier every day and we have leaders that um they make some of the leaders in the period of the judges look really, really good. And, Father, we just pray that you would restrain the evil 
that you would continue to watch over us, that you would especially expose the evil that is going on inside of Christianity, the number of heretical pastors and preachers and so-called bishops and prophets multiplies exponentially. And Father, this is so destructive to us as as your people, as the church, and it is destructive to this nation. And Father, we pray that your word would be honored and glorified in the minds of believers and that we might not be distracted and disturbed by that which goes on around us, but that we may faithfully walk with you and keep our eyes on you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Judges chapter 5 as we uh, move forward. And tonight we're going to begin that the bee sings. Deborah means the bee. And this is the song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5. And we'll just get through uh, introductory material uh, this evening. One of the things we'll need to come back to when we finish this is to examine what the Bible talks about in terms of women and leadership and gender roles and specifics, and especially in relation to what does the Bible really teach us about these uh, these particular areas, because we live in a world of gender uh, dystopia, we live in a world of such confusion, and this is uh, putting going to be putting even more pressure upon Christians because this is the direction of a, our fallen culture. And so we have to have the answers for the hope that is in us and understand what the Scripture teaches. So we'll get to a few things there uh, before we move on from this uh, judge to the next judge, which is Gideon. So this is the time when chaos was king because of a failure to trust God. And that's really the bottom line. Last night in my lecture in the church history course, we talked about what happened at the end of the 19th century from about uh, 1880, 1870 to 1930. And that laid the groundwork for where we are today. And the one thing that came out of this, I've asked this question for a long time, and in my study I came to realize that what happened was that in the academic realms, in the intellectual elites in America by after World War I, we had pretty much adopted a fully pagan postmodernism. There was no morality left. Uh, on the intellectual basis, there was no basis or foundation anymore for morality or ethics. You know a little bit about the Roaring Twenties. And what the intellectuals were writing in describing the culture at that time was that the wheels had already come off. What kept, it for, kept us from having a train wreck was the Great Depression followed by World War II. And then the wheels started coming off we, in the 50s. People think of the 50s as a good time of innocence, but this was the rise of the beatnik generation and many other things that were happening in certain realms of our culture that then gave birth to um, gave birth to the 60s and the rebelliousness of the 60s. And it's funny because people often want to go back to this idealistic time, a time uh, that we grew up in in the 50s, a time of greater innocence 
and you look at television shows and films that came out, and if you watch the right films, you see the hints of what's coming. But most of us were watching the more entertaining films, and we think, you know, if we just had films and television shows like that, it would improve our culture. Well, the kids that grew up watching all of that turned into the hippies and the anti-war protesters and drug addicts of the 60s. So it didn't do any good. What happens is a more fundamental, at an intellectual level, there is a failure to trust God. And that is exactly what happened. One of the uh, intellectual elites of the uh, teens and 20s wrote that... um, that if somebody were to stand up and say that they were a Christian, then all of his hearers would just laugh at him. Because that is how the culture had much, they had rejected Christianity by the early 20s. And uh, one of the books that I'm having the students read and write a book review of is a book by uh, J. Gresham Machen, who was probably the foremost defender of orthodox biblical Christianity at that time. And one of my students emailed today and said, the more I read this book, the more I think he's living in our time. And that is because they had made that shift in the 20s, and it's no different than today. It's just we've just gone a little further into the quicksand. So the only hope is the Bible. The only hope is our walk with the Lord. And because we have that, we have joy, which is not emotion. It's a mental attitude of stability and enthusiasm in the proper sense, not emotionalism, because we are excited about what God is doing and our relationship with him. And we have to be even more diligent to maintain that walk with the Lord. Because we are watching in our time a time like the judges where we see the cycles of failures described in the introductory chapters 1 and 2 and into 3, 6. And then the paganization, increasing paganization of the leadership and then the paganization of the priests and the people in the last part. The whole culture comes under this this influence because they have... Uh, they have turned their back on God, they have abandoned God, and they have replaced God with the, in those days they were the fertility gods and goddesses, the gods and goddesses of wood and metal and stone, and today we have, we have the idols of self. We have the idols of, of uh, our own self-absorption. We have idols that are the Um, abstract idols of the mind, but our culture is just as idolatrous as the culture of that time. Even though it's not a physical idolatry, it is just as destructive. Now, tonight what we're going to do is we're going to get into the background and understanding a little bit of what's happening here in this uh, psalm. It is a psalm, Judges chapter 5 is the song of Deborah. And so we have to understand a little bit about it and review a little bit about what is going on, what we've seen. 
Now, in Judges 4, we have the description of the battle. We have the description of the problem. We have the description of how God um, raised up Deborah, a prophetess, and one who uh, judged Israel in relationship to being a prophetess. That means that she was looked to as one who would give a word from God. This is typically a man, but the fact that it's not shows that there's a problem. And that's because the men were not men. The men were not assuming their responsibilities as biblical leaders of the culture. That's what it means for a man to be a man. And so this woman was raised up by God because there were no alternatives. And it's interesting that as we look at that narrative, there are three key players in chapter chapter 4. Deborah, of course, Barak, who will be the general, and Yael, who will uh, provide the coup de grace at the end of the episode. Now, what's interesting is that the last time that Deborah is mentioned in this uh, lengthy chapter is in Judges 4.14, where we read, Then Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tavor with 10,000 men following him. She's on Mount Tavor. She orders Barak to take the army and to attack Sisera. She is speaking for God in her role as a prophetess, speaking for God. Uh, She's not mentioned again. She's not mentioned uh, in the fighting. She's not mentioned at the denouement of the war. That's the last we hear of her in chapter 4. What is interesting is that this is almost the last time we hear of Barak. The next two times he is mentioned, he is mentioned really, his name is used because he is the general of the army, and he is the one leading the army. So his name stands for the army. It is much like we will talk about uh, something that the president does, and we talk about him uh, as standing for the nation or standing for his party or something of that nature. We often do that. We talk about a coach, and we're really talking about the whole team. Uh, We talk about... Uh, various leaders in that way. We will talk about, for example, what Churchill did in World War II, and Churchill um, didn't do a lot of what we say he did because it was carried out by England and it was carried out by the army and other things like that. But we talk about uh, use the person in charge and uh, because they're the one ultimately responsible. And so that's how we read uh, Barack and verses 15 and 16. But in verse 22, we see him as an individual again. And there we read, and then as Barak pursued Sisera, Yael came out to meet him and said to him, I'll show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. And that's it. We don't hear of Barak anymore. So they're not really major players. Now what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is the next verse tells us who the major player is. In Hebrew narrative, God is always the hero. 
not the humans. They are the means God uses to accomplish his will. And in verse 23, we read, So on that day God subdued Yavin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the sons of Israel. Now one thing I want to note here, because this is an important exegetical point, the word that day, uh, it must be understood to refer to what's in the immediate context. It is what is called the near demonstrative. And what we read there is, and when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Yavin. Now that doesn't mean that the, that the war is over. But he's lost the war. He had, the strategic victory has been accomplished, but the mopping up operation uh, still needs to go forth. And that's what is described in verse 20, 24. And the hand of the children or the sons of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Yavin, king of, of Canaan, until they had destroyed Yavin, the king of Canaan. Now, time has gone by here. Time has gone by. So when we read in verse 1, then Deborah and Barak, the son of Ahinoam, sang on that day, that, that, that is not referring to what that day refers to in verse 23. Verse 23 is talking about on the day that Sisera was assassinated, that God gave them uh, the subdued Yavin, but he's not out of the picture until after verse 24. So once there's the destruction of Yavin, king of Canaan, that's when she writes this hymn of deliverance, when the war is over. We could think, think of a World War II analogy. There were turning points in World War II. Once, once we defeated the Japanese at the Battle of Midway, the Pacific War was won. We still had to just carry out all of the mopping up operations, but that was the turning point. From that point on, uh, uh, Japan was fighting a defensive war. Uh, once you have D-Day on June 6th of 1944, that's the turn real turning point there in the European theater. And from that point on, uh, it's We've won the strategic victory, but we have to carry it out until the war and the Germans finally surrendered. And so that's the difference between these, these two events. And it's not until the war is over that you have the ticker tape parade in New York City. You don't do it because there's a battle that's won that's the turning point uh, in the war. And there's something also a little bit interesting in verse 23 where it says, so on that day God subdued Yavin, the king of Canaan. And the writer wants us to pay attention to this in the Hebrew. You'll miss it in the English. But the Hebrew word for, for subdued is this word right here, kana. Okay, so I've got the English spelling here. And notice that except for the A-N ending, the first part of that word is spelled exactly like Canaan, Canaan. Now, they don't have the same etymology, but they're spelled similarly, 
And there are many other words in Hebrew that the writer could have used for defeated, for subdued, for destroyed, for wiped out the enemy. But he chooses this one because by using that in the same sentence with Canaan, Canaan, he brings our the tension, if we're reading in the original, to the certainty of this act. And he, it draws our attention to the fact that, that, that there's a subduing of Canaan here. It is the, part of the fulfillment of God's desire in the war for Israel to take control, uh, take control of the land. And so um, we come to the end of that chapter, and that brings us to the introduction of chapter 5. And in that chapter, what we read is that then... So this is after the destruction of the Yavin, the king of Canaan. Then uh, Devorah, Devorah, and Barak, the son of Avinoam, sang on that day, saying, that's our introduction. And then we have the introduction to this hymn, which goes from verse 2 down through verse 31. And that's what we need to talk about is the significance of this particular hymn and how do we read this and how do we understand these things so that we can have an appreciation for these psalms. This is unique in the Bible. Well, it's not quite unique. There's one other example of this. Now, what am I talking about? What we have is a prose description of the battle in chapter 4. But it leaves us with a lot of questions. We don't know everything that happened. And so there is a look at it from a poetic perspective where a lot of other questions are answered and new information is given. And one of the things that we're going to learn when we uh, get into this is exactly how God destroyed the chariot corps of Sisera. And apparently when we look at this, then that's going to be described in verses 19 down to 23, is that we discover that there's been a flash flood. But there's more than just a flash flood going on here. Once you have this flash flood, all the ground is muddy and it's hard for the horses to maneuver and it's difficult for the chariot wheels to turn. And so they're stuck in the mud literally and they can't maneuver, and they can't win, and that's what God has done. But there's even more going on here. Because what we read is, verse 19, the kings came and fought, then the kings of Canaan fought. In Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. Is this just really bizarre hyperbole? Or is there something more going on here? That there is an angelic dimension to this war. That this fits into that angelic revolt, just pulling back the curtain a little bit to let us know that this isn't simply a physical war that is going on, but there is something going on in terms of what's happening in the heavens with the angels and the fallen angels and that these two spheres, the uh, physical, visible sphere and the angelic, invisible sphere, have a correlation to one another. 
And that's just not, not true just for this event. We can think of what happens later in Daniel chapter 10 when Daniel is praying that God would send a messenger and it takes about 40 days before uh, the messenger gets there because he says, well, I was restrained by the uh, prince of Persia. He's not talking about the physical prince of Persia. He's talking about a, a demonic power one of the principalities and powers whose dominion is and domain is over the kingdom of Persia, that each nation, each national entity has a demonic power that is influencing that nation. And so we just see a little bit of that here. So it, this is a very important uh, aspect of this hymn is it's opening our eyes to elements of the battle that were not physically apparent in the, in the literal, physical, material battle that took place. And so we have to take a little time. I want to take a little time just talking about this because this is a hymn. And as I said, started to say, is that you've got this unique situation where you have a, a, a literal historical narrative battle take described in cha one chapter and it is immediately followed by a poetic section that gives us a different insight into what is going on there's only one other place in scripture where this takes place and i think that because of that precedent in exodus chapter 15 you can go ahead and start trying to find exodus chapter 15 that we ought to look at it. Exodus 15 is what happens, uh, the victory song of Moses after the uh, Red Sea incident when God delivers Israel. And so there's a compare, an, an, an sort of an implicit comparison here because these are the only two places where there's that kind of a description where you have a narrative followed by a poetic uh, uh, description of those those two events, and that tells us that that there's something a lot more significant about what's going on in Judges four, because it the only thing it's parallel to is Exodus chapter fifteen. So just turn with me to Exodus chapter chapter fifteen. The other thing that is similar between the two incidents is, is that in Exodus chapter 15, you have Miriam, who is the identified not as the sister of Moses, but as the sister of Aaron, and that she is uh, involved in music, and she too, like Deborah, is identified as a prophetess. And in both situations, their role as a prophetess is related to music. And we've gone through various passages in 1 Samuel as well as in 1 Chronicles where there are people who are said to prophesy with timbrel and with lyre and with other musical instruments, and they are singing to the Lord. So that is a meaning of the word uh, Nevi'im, well, it's, that's the plural Nevi, which is the singular of, of prophet. And so we see this at the end of Exodus 15, that there is this um, antiphonal singing going on between the men and the women, 
and the men are singing the victory hymn of Moses, and the women are singing the, the antiphonal response. And in verse 20 and 21 we read, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. Now this is important to understand this. This isn't dancing like you did at your sock hop when you were in uh, junior high. It wasn't dancing like you did in the disco clubs in the 70s and 80s. It's not dancing like they do today. They, you know, until we got to this dysfunctional culture that has no standards and no form and no structure, dancing always had form and structure. You think of a ballet. There is leaping, there is uh, spinning and twirling around, but it is very organized, it is very structured, it is not each person just doing whatever they want to. When you have each person doing just whatever they want to, that's a byproduct of the fact that we are self-absorbed. We ha- have, as one church historian put it, he identifies the era post-World War II as the therapeutic era, the era of the self and it's all about the self and psychotherapy and self-realization and self-fulfillment and all of these other dimensions of arrogance. And you go back, and most of us went through various classes in college and university talking about, like, especially using Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and the, uh, the top thing is, is self-actualization. All these are just forms of self-absorption and, um, self-absorption and arrogance. And that's what feeds our country. It's all about self and how I, my, how I can have a, excel in my career. It's all about me. It's how I do what I can get out of, of it. But in the ancient world and in the medieval world, uh, in the classical world, this dancing was not like that. It was formal and it was structured. And so that is what is going on at this particular time. Same thing with the music. It followed, followed structure. Uh, at the sort of the high watermark of, of music, in the coming out of the Enlightenment, the Christian music of great composers like Handel and Bach and others, the, the form of the music was very organized and structured. And when you entered into the next period philosophical shift, starting the worldview shift that t- t- started taking place in the mid to late 1700s, what develops is the period known as Romanticism. And there's a throwing off of these structures, and instead of they, they, they resist the cold intellectual use of reason and logic that characterized the Enlightenment. And because now, after, after Kant, uh, nobody can know truth anymore. You can only know your perception of truth. Everything becomes subjective. And so the music shifts and the emphasis is on more emotion because philosophically now the culture is asserting that I can't find truth out there. There's no objective truth. I can't know God. I can only know religious impressions. So everything boils down to emotion and experience and faith is redefined as an emotional encounter with God. And it deteriorates from there throughout the entire 19th century. 
That's why Francis Schaeffer called it, starting with that shift after Kant, he called it the escape from reason. Reason was debunked. Order and structure was debunked. Now, that doesn't mean everybody went out and got chaotic. It's taken another 200 years to get to the point where we see it, but that's where the foundation was laid. So when, when you, we think about the music, we think about the hymns, these are very well structured. The uh, standards for the poetry, we don't have the music, we just have the poetry, but it follows very strict guidelines. They're just not writing free verse. There are, there are standards to uphold. But let's go back to the beginning. So what has happened in chapter 14 is the description of the escape through the Red Sea and the Red Sea crossing and how God delivered them and destroyed the Egyptian army. And after the uh, ten plagues, the Egyptian culture and society, government, uh, the priesthood, everything was decimated. We don't hear in the Bible of Egypt being a major power again for about 300 years takes them that long to rebuild their civilization. And so Moses is going to write a hymn that is a praise hymn. So it's the response to what God has done, described in verse 31, thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. And we still have that same God. The God that we worship today is just as powerful, just as magnificent and just as able to give us victory over the problems in our lives as he did the Egyptians. It's just that he's not going to intervene in some of those special ways because it's a different dispensation with different purposes. So the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses many, many times in Exodus we're told that that generation believed the Lord. They were a nation of believers, self-absorbed, rebellious believers, but they were believers. Then in Exodus 15:1, then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke saying, I will sing to the Lord. Singing is one of the ways that you express praise. We'll see that in a minute. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he's thrown into the sea. And then the promise, universal truth, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. There it's not salvation eternal, it's deliverance from the uh, slavery in Egypt. He has become my salvation. He is my God, I will praise him my Father is God, and I will exalt him. And that's what praise means, is to exalt God, to lift him up. We go on to read, just to get a sense of this kind of a uh, descriptive or de uh, descriptive praise uh, hymn. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his armies cast into the sea. His choice captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. So in praising God, you describe what he did. They don't just say, well, thank you, Lord. That was a great deliverance. That's too superficial and doesn't express what the Hebrew expresses. It is a description going into details. 
uh, on Sunday we sang a hymn where it talks about uh, calling upon God to give us the words to praise Him. And that is a call to worship. And we should think about that as we pray and as we uh, praise God, uh, describing exactly what He has done. That's what Moses is doing here. This is a pattern. We describe the details. Uh, verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose uh, against you and sent forth your wrath. You ought to go through this and outline our list, all of the attributes of God that are mentioned in this, in this psalm. Great psalm. So let's turn back to Judges 5. When we talk about a praise psalm, we have to define the term praise. Unfortunately, we have become such a uh, superficial, sentimental people as Christians. And actually, that goes back to the Victorian era in the 19th century, where because after Kant, you know, you can only know truth, you can't know truth. Faith is now emotion, it is having an emotional experience with God because you can't have objective knowledge, so faith is destroyed. And so what happened increasingly through the 19th century is things became more and more sentimental. A lot of those revival hymns that we sometimes like because they uh, speak to our emotions, they're written that way because that sentimentality was an assurance of faith. It's a rebellion against rationality and the logic of Scripture and putting the emphasis on emotion and how it makes me feel. I like those hymns. They make me feel good. That's, not, that's, bad. that's pagan thinking. That's what happens. So what is praise in Scripture? Praise in Scripture is, the, is a public recital of the acts of God on behalf of either an individual or the public as a whole. From the little bit that I read of Moses' song of deliverance, that's what we see. He's reciting specifics about what God did. That's what praise is. It's not saying, oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, and holding one hand up, and, you know, this is praising God. No, that's just sentimentalism gone to seed. Anytime the objective works of God in history are recited before man, objective works, see, the Bible says we can know truth. It's objective, it's real, it's outside of us. God created us to know objective reality. But modern man, uh, due to the failures of modern philosophy and their rejection of God, their failure to believe God, have turned Christianity into just a simpering little emotional religion. I have discovered that in ways I never had imagined before as I've gone through this, teaching this course and reading what was going on and reading the sermons and reading the hymns that were written in the late 19th century and early 20th century. This was the big battle. So I go on to say praise usually also connotes a spontaneity, spontaneity to it. So it may be spontaneous, but is not without following certain standards, certain norms, certain ways of doing things. Praise psalms may also contain some lament, that is the expression of a problem, but the major emphasis is always praise, extolling the specific 
ways in which God has intervened and provided uh, deliverance. A passage that gives us an idea of how psalms are structured is found in a much later work. This is in First Chronicles, which is written after the return of the Jews from Babylon. And in First Chronicles, it is reminding the people, those who returned from the, um, uh, uh, from the exile in Babylon, of what God had done in the past before that, and his work in giving the covenant to David and David's building of the temple and what God is going to do through David's descendants. So there's no mention in First Chronicles of Israel at all. It's just a rehearsal of what is going on uh, in Judah. And so this is that time period when they brought up the Ark of God and set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. Just as a segue, as a side note, David's act of bringing the Lord up to the Temple Mount is what is talked about in Psalm 68. Psalm 68, which is in Ephesians 4, is is the psalm that is describing the victory ascent of God to the Temple Mount, culminating, bringing the conquest to somewhat of a incomplete but a conclusion. For now, God is resting on the Temple Mount. Anyway, back to the verse. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And then the point. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, and they were to do three things. To commemorate, to thank, and to praise the God of Israel. And those three things are important to understand because they express the three basic categories of the Psalms. So they are going to minister through song, and we know other passages that talk about David appointing the various choirs and the musicians to prophesy with lyre and music, lyre and timbrels, etc. So what does it mean to commemorate? Now, the Part of a problem is you can look at the bottom line is the NASB 95 translates that as celebrate. This is not the word for celebration in that sense. Even when you use celebrate, like we talk about worship as an act of celebration, uh, it is a more somber idea than what you might think of in terms of going out and setting off a lot of firecrackers and singing the Star Spangled Banner and other patriotic hymns on the 4th of July. That's one form of celebration. This is a more somber and sober form of celebration, but that's not really the idea in this word. Neither is it to offer prayers, which is how the NET basically, what would the word be? It's sort of a paraphrase, an interpretive paraphrase, not really a translation. The Hebrew word is the word zakar, and um, it is in the Hifil Binyan, 
That's a new word for all of us. I've learned that this semester in my Hebrew course that we used to call them the stems, the cal, the pl, the pu'al. You've heard all those terms before, didn't know what they meant, different forms of the words, but now the word that is used is binyan. So this is the hifil binyan, and what the hifil binyan does is it's a causative. So it's not just remembering, it's being caused to remember something. Uh, to be reminded or to commemorate an event, a circumstance, to think about it and to meditate on it. It's not just having a slight recall, but to really take some time to reflect upon those original circumstances and what they mean. Lord willing, I hope to spend a little time doing that when we come to Thanksgiving and reflecting upon what happened when our pilgrim forefathers came here. Last year, I just missed it. The Mayflower Compact had its 400th anniversary last year, but this year is the 400th anniversary of that first Thanksgiving meal at Plymouth. So uh, we had a double shot at it. So Zakar has that idea. Now, we know this in modern Hebrew, which is very similar to in many, many ways to uh, biblical Hebrew, because that's the, the, the rabbis were speaking biblical Hebrew all through the years from the collapse of the temple, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 up till they resurrected, uh, resurrected Hebrew in our modern times. And they had to come up with new words, but the roots were still very, very similar. So when you go to, when we have Memorial Day in May, what are we doing? We are remembering those who made the ultimate sacrifice, and it should be a time of somber reflection. It's not. It's a time of sales, and it's a time of, of uh, cookouts and all kinds of rather superficial activities. But when you are in Israel and you... Uh, observe yom which is the word for day yom hazikron hear hear that word zakar zikron ha yom hazikron is uh, the national memorial or remembrance day and from sundown the night before until sundown on that day um, there's no businesses opening open everything is closed the only activity you see are the few uh, people that are involved in setting up the stages and the tents and other things for what will break loose at sundown that night when Independence Day comes. I just think that's a great way to connect them because first you think about the people who gave their life for your freedom and you spend a day in somber remembrance and prayer. And then when sundown hits, the party starts and you celebrate your freedom. It's just tremendous. So that's the idea of, of zakar. It's not just recalling something, but it is remembering it in a, in a profound way to think and meditate on it. What is its implication for me, and how should I act in light of that? That's what th- this word uh, memory emphasizes in Scripture. So it's to commemorate. Then the next word is the word yada. And it's also hit field to cause people to remember or to give thanks. 
It has a, a spread of meanings. It can mean to confess publicly or announce publicly something, something that God has done in, in this application. That's what praise is, to publicly announce what God has done. Uh, it's translated as give thanks and thanks, but that's not its core semantic uh, value. It, it really focuses more on this pu- uh, public description of what God has done and acknowledging uh, what God has done. And this is what you do in a uh, descriptive praise hymn. So this is one of the important wor- words that is used there. And then the third important word uh, I'm introducing here is the word hallel. We hear it in the word hallelujah, the hallel psalms. These are praise psalms. That's what hallel basically means is to pray or to accept, extol. And literally it has the idea of shining upon, shining a light on something. So you're putting some event or some person in the spotlight. Uh, and that's the idea of praise. We're putting the spotlight on God and not on our not on ourselves. So there are different these express three different kinds of psalms. There are psalms that are uh praise psalms to remember what God has done. There are thanksgiving psalms that talk about what God has done and publicly acknowledge it. And then there are these uh, other descriptive praise psalms. So the way we have broken things down in terms of modern uh, expressions of these categories is the first type is called a lament psalm. And a lament psalm is basically expressing your problem to God. It is using your problem-solving devices within the framework of a, of a prayer or a psalm. And it's, it's written out, and it's written out according to certain standards so that they is taking what you have prayed for, which might not have been quite so poetic, and then putting it in a more expressive way that can be then read in the, at the temple, read on the, on the feast day. So you have uh, six different elements that can be found in a lament psalm. Now, not all of these are going to be in every psalm. They're not necessarily going to be all in this order. Some of them may be no more than a verse or part of a verse, uh, others, uh, sometimes instead of having an introductory petition, they'll just have the main petition. So, But these are generally the basic ideas. So the address to God, is the, the psalm is directly addressed to God. He is addressed as, O God, O Yahweh Elohim, O King of Israel. There are various ways that they are addressed. So when you see a psalm that starts this way, you know that that it is something of that this nature, perhaps, just as when you open up a letter and it says "dear" and it follows by your name and it's handwritten, then you think that this is a personal letter to you unless they use one of those handwriting fonts, and it's really the Jehovah's Witness down the street who somehow got your name. But we start off, there are certain structures, certain phrases that tell us things. For example, if you start to read something and it says once upon a time, then you know that you're getting ready to read a fairy tale. If it starts off whereas, 
the above-mentioned party of the first part, then you know you're reading a legal document. So words have different meanings in different contexts. For example, if you read about read the word ball in the sports page, then you're pretty sure it's going to be talking about an object that is used in the playing of a game. But if you read the word ball on the society page, then you know that it's talking about something completely different. And so it is... Uh, important to understand these words in context. And in poetry, words have broader fluid type meanings than they do, for example, in legal documents or in a historical document. So it's really important to take a look at those, those aspects. And so then we have the introductory petition, which sort of explains that I'm in a, pro- I, I'm in a fix, I've got a problem, my enemies surround me, uh, I am without aid, something of that nature. And then there's an expression of the confident section in God, which is what we would call the faith rest drill. This is when the psalmist declares that his total confidence and exclusive reliance is upon God and that he, God is his only hope, his only source of deliverance. And often they'll go through the petition or excuse me, the, uh, the, the lament or introductory lament, and then he'll say, but as for me, I trust in you. And you see there's a mental attitude shift there. He's talking about his problem. I'm overrun. I've got problems with my kids. They hate me. You know, the bank, I, I don't have any money, and i got this stack of bills this high, and I've got $1 in my bank account. But God, and see, you see that mental attitude shift from a focus on my problems to a focus on the one who can solve my problems. This is what that confident faith expression is all about. So in the lament section, it talks about his adversities, his enemies, his mental attitude, the fact that he is discouraged, depressed, overwhelmed, whatever it may be. And then he is going to express a, a petition to God specifically stating what he wants God to do. And what we read in all of the Psalms is that these are real people dealing with just the same kinds of problems that you and I deal with all the time, and they know that the only hope they have is Valium. Nope, they didn't have it. They didn't have Zoloft. They didn't have any other kind of prescription drug. The only hope they had was God. That's the sufficiency of Scripture. They knew that they had to trust God and trust him alone. And so they are going to turn to him and express their desire for him. And then there closes with a vow of praise that, that God delivers them. Then they will go to the temple and they will uh, express their praise to God and describe what he has done to them and that God is the one who will get all of the glory. And so when that happens, we have what is called the declarative praise psalm where the psalmist is going to uh, explain and describe exactly what, what God has done. So this is what we have in a lament psalm. Then we have the Thanksgiving psalm. This is often what happens once the uh, lament psalm, once that prayer, that petition is answered. And in this uh, declarative or descriptive praise psalm, there are actually two different categories. 
The psalmist acknowledges how God has answered the prayer. Examples are Psalm 21, Psalm 30, Psalm 32, 34, 40, and 66. Two key verses, Psalm 50, 14, the command to offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Now, what does that mean? We've got all kinds of vow laws in the Mosaic Law, but in the New Testament, it says, Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. We are to tell people what God has done in our life. We are to describe it. And this is a good lead-in to thanksgiving. We often just thank God, and then we eat the turkey, if you can find one this year, and it's not too expensive. But we thank God for what he has provided for us, but this gives us the opportunity to describe in detail those things that God has supplied and God has provided. One of the more interesting, not too conservative, but fairly conservative German scholar named Klaus Westermann has some good insights into uh, various things related to the Psalms. And he, especially with regard to word studies, the Germans are really good at word studies, but you always have to watch out for their theology. And he notes that the simplified idea of thanks, like we have in English, is not really a primary meaning in many major languages. And he says there's really no word in Hebrew that in its core semantic meaning means thank you. Now they have Toda Rabah, which is the word that is used. It's a form of yada, and so they use that today. But historically, the concept of yada or giving praise, which is where the word Toda for thank you comes from, it, it means a lot more than that. It, it, it's not just a matter of just saying thanks or thank you or I really appreciate that. It is a richer, more robust concept that it has to do with describing, praising, and showering the person with bouquets of joy and happiness over all that they have done just really over-dramatizing it, we would say, uh, in our culture, giving a lavish description of all that has been done and what that means to you. It is an expression of genuine appreciation that goes beyond just simply saying, uh, thanks, I appreciate that. And this is where the idea of praise comes from. That's what it's really talking about. And so the giving of thanks, extolling gratitude, expressing deep gratitude uh, to God. And, and in our culture, we have a lot of this English background where we don't say a whole lot, less is more. Um, but that's not the Hebrew idea, more is more. And so that is very good. Um, C.S. Lewis, by the way, that film, The Reluctant Convert, opens on Friday, has a book on the Psalms. He has some odd idea about, ideas about some of the Psalms. But, but what he points out, and very simply, is that we naturally praise what we really appreciate. And you notice that, that when somebody does something and you really, really appreciate it, you talk a lot about it. It's not just a simple thank you. And so that's what happens is people uh, should be telling others about how much they appreciate what God has done and enjoying all of his benefits and not just saying, oh, I enjoy all of his benefits, but talking about what are those benefits you enjoy. Uh, 
That's what praise is. So we have um, several words that are used for praise. We have hallel, which I mentioned already, and it can mean praise. It can mean a shout of jubilation. Uh, it can mean singing, praising, just extolling the greatness of God. And this is the uh, primary word that is used. Another word that is used is the word zamar. We have it in verse 3 of chapter 5. And in verse 3, chapter 5, we read here, O kings, give ear, O princes, I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. So this is singing. That's a common word in the Psalms. And then another word is the word from Barach. Another form of that blessing is bracha, or as it's anglicized to baraka. Uh, it berek means to bless or to enrich by praise. And so when we say bless God, we're not giving God something other than praise. It becomes a synonym uh, for praise. And so when Deborah will say in um, at the end of verse, where is it? At the end of verse 2, when leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless Yahweh. What is she saying? She's saying praise Yahweh when this happens, when the people do what is right. This is declarative praise. Uh, it is a proclamation to praise God. It has an introductory summary of what God has done, often what God has done in the past. So if we look at verse um, 4, Lord, when you went out from Seir, where is Mount Seir? That is in Edom, talking about God's deliverance of them from the Edomites. When you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. Often uh, nature is involved and used by God in bringing uh, bringing victory. The earth trembled, the heavens poured, the clouds also poured water. So it's, she's relating this back to a previous historical event that because God does the same thing uh, against Sisera. There's a, there's a thunderstorm and a flash flood. The mountains gushed before the Lord this Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. So she's connecting this back to Sinai and back to the exodus from Egypt. And then another event, and more contemporary, in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anat, that in the days of Yael, the highways were deserted, and the travelers walked along the byways. Why? Because the nation's under divine discipline from God. They're overrun by foreign powers, and nobody wants to go out on the street. You're not safe, sort of like Houston or Detroit or Chicago or New York because we don't have law, good law enforcement and because we've elected, we haven't, but the other side has elected these incompetent district attorneys and these ridiculous judges that hardly ever show up and don't know the first thing about adjudicating a trial or that they should show up and what they should do. And that's what was happening in Israel. Cultures collapsing, the chaos is king. The village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. So it's pretty bad. 
But notice when she says, until I, Deborah, arose, we know that Deborah is the one who is writing this declarative praise. And so she will go on to report of the deliverance and vow of praise and call for praise to God. Descriptive praise, basically three elements, a call to praise, a cause for praise is described, and then renewal called to praise. Sometimes it's, it's different. So this is where we are and where we'll come back to next time, understanding how this starts uh, in 5.2 and 5.3 and interesting translation issues in these uh, introductory verses. So we'll come back next time and learn how she is praising God for this remarkable victory and how it is connected to the angelic conflict, the angelic revolt. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to realize that you are the hero of all things. You're the hero of our life. You are the one who delivers in all things, and we are just, sometimes we have a privilege of being uh, used by you, like Deborah and Barack, as part of that deliverance. Other times we just stand by and we watch the deliverance of the Lord. Father, we thank you that we can rely upon you and are reminded that we are to have a great confidence in you and trust in you and you alone uh, for the victory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.